Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to have as my guests Dr. James Smith, who is professor in the physical therapy department at Utica College, and Dr. Patricia Otaki, who is associate professor of physical therapy in the Department of Rehabilitation Science at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. It's an honor to join you. Yeah, thank you, Alan. Today we're going to talk about a perspective that they and their colleagues published in PTJ. It's entitled Home and Community-Based Physical Therapist Management of Adults with Post-Intensive Care Syndrome, or PICS. This is an extremely timely topic, and I look forward to discussing it with each of you. In your article, you describe PICS as a condition where patients experience new or worsening physical disability, mental health difficulties, or cognitive impairments after discharge from the intensive care unit. Can you talk a little bit about how prevalent PICS is and whether or not we have any data as yet on the prevalence of PICS among COVID-19 survivors? Certainly, Alan. More than about 50% of people who survive a stay that includes ICU will have at least one of these three problems you you outlined um, that are associated with post-intensive care syndrome. Um, There are approximately 4 million people annually that survive an ICU stay, so this is a large number of the population um, that survive ICU stays that have this problem. And these problems can really affect the lives of people who survive. In an interview that was published in Science this week, our co-author, Dr. Dale Needham, who's a critical care physician at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, stated that this new coronavirus might put ICU survivors at particular risk for some of the problems that we see in PICS. So really, most of the information that we have right now is coming from the front lines anecdotally. this one of the reasons why these individuals will be at higher risk for these problems is the exceptionally severe lung injury that the COVID-19 um, infection is causing. And this leads to many people spending prolonged periods of time on a mechanical ventilator under deep sedation. And some people with coronavirus require more than two weeks on a mechanical ventilator. And we know that the presence of post-intensive care syndrome problems increase with the length of time on the mechanical ventilator. Therefore, we are projecting that survivors of COVID-19 may be at higher risk for long-term disability and illness. In your article, you make note of the fact that among home and community-based physical therapists, there's limited awareness and understanding of post-intensive care syndrome. Why do you think that's the case? We think the the reason that it has evolved that way is the literature about post-intensive care syndrome has been concentrated in the journals 
that focus on critical care medicine. I think anecdotally, there's a story that helps explain this. A few years ago, I was in APTA's House of Delegates, and I was seated next to a colleague that I didn't know before that house. And after a couple days of getting to know her, I said one time, well, when's your next marathon going to be? And she said, oh, I've got no more marathons. And I was curious. I asked, why not? And she explained about a complicated pregnancy and delivery, followed by uh, a stay in the intensive care unit for about five days and all the problems that had developed since then. And they said, oh, oh, you've got post-intensive care syndrome. And she said, oh, oh, no, I don't. No one's ever told me that. Well, this is someone who was a physical therapist. Her husband's a physical therapist. They understand rehabilitation very well. And the more she learned about post-intensive care syndrome, the more she said, that's exactly what I've got. She's now joined us as a co-presenter at conferences. She's joined us as a co-author in the systematic review that we published in PTJ in 2018 on the physical impairments that accompany post-intensive care syndrome. And I think she's a great example of well-informed healthcare providers that are not able to recognize this constellation of problems that persists even years after someone has experienced critical illness. And I don't think it's unique to physical therapists. Our concern is that this is a problem that's under-recognized in all primary care providers. So we're also trying to get the word out to nurse practitioners, to physicians, to uh, other healthcare providers so that they recognize this in a timely manner because these problems are really reducing the ability to fully participate in the community and are reducing uh, reported quality of life. It's a great anecdote, Jim, and I hope your colleague is back running, if not marathons, shorter distances at least. In, in your article, you talk about a study that really struck me. It was a multi-site study where that noted that among patients who survive for at least two years after acute respiratory distress syndrome, 80% of survivors had at least one inpatient admission to a skilled nursing or rehab facility or readmission to the acute care hospital during that two-year period. I found that a frightening prevalence rate. Um, do you think we're likely to see similar rates among COVID-19 survivors who are treated in intensive care? Alan, I agree with you that this is certainly a problem that we could be looking at with this um, group of patients that are surviving this coronavirus. The study you're referring to by Dr. Ru and colleagues that was published in the Annals of the American Thoracic Society in 2015 found that the odds of readmission for ICU survivors was higher for people that had pre-existing conditions, comorbidities, and also for those that had a longer period of time on mechanical ventilation. And that's exactly what we're seeing for people yeah. with the coronavirus. They have more comorbidities. They're requiring mechanical ventilation about two to three times longer than seen in people with um, acute respiratory distress syndrome which was the patient population that this data was derived from. So we do suspect that these individuals 
with coronavirus who survive ICU will also have this increased risk of hospitalization in the years after their recovery. It's very frightening. And in your article, then, you go on and talk about return to employment. And you note a study that reported that uh, return to employment was not achieved for anywhere from 44 to 70% of survivors who were employed prior to their ICU stage. Uh, I see that as a staggering rate. Uh, do you know from that study or others the risk factors associated with lower uh, levels of return to work? Yes, re return to work is a serious problem for people that have survived ICU care. And when we think about ICU, sometimes we have the misperception that it's the elderly that are in the ICU, but the average age of people that require ICU is really about 45 to 55. And um, so these are people that are gainfully employed that are now ending up in ICU. And we're seeing that while the COVID-19 virus seems to be affecting the older patients that are requiring ICU, there's certainly, that's not universal. There's certainly incidents of coronavirus infections in all age groups, um, certainly in all adult age groups. And as far as the inability to return to work, the study that you're um, referring to was conducted by Dr. Kamdar and his colleagues, and they found that 43% of people that had previously worked never returned to their number of hours, 31% experienced a major occupation change, and 27% reported reduced effectiveness at work, with about a quarter of people ultimately um, losing their jobs. And when they investigated those findings, they found that predictors were the number of comorbidities and the increased duration of mechanical ventilation, as well as discharge to a skilled nursing facility. And those three factors were associated with an inability to return to work. And again, we're seeing those same factors um, in our patient population that has the COVID-19 infection. They seem to have more comorbidities and longer duration of mechanical ventilation. I'm unsure of the skilled nursing facility um, discharges physician data at this time, but certainly from what we understand from Dr. Kamdar's work, it does look like individuals that survive um, ICU care with the coronavirus potentially will have challenges in returning to work. These are frightening uh, data, and it really makes me concerned about people who are surviving COVID-19. In your article, you talk about how the recovery can be slow and can take months or years. Do you have a good sense of the prognosis for eventual recovery from the kinds of impairments that um, – are reflective of people with PICS after discharge from intensive care? This concern has really driven some of our interest in this topic because as we found from the systematic review that I mentioned earlier, there are people who have physical impairments persisting 10 years after their experience in critical care. So. Uh, in the natural course of recovery, it's a very slow and protracted 
improvement in any of these. There are specific impairments in uh, respiratory muscle strength, which is reduced at six months and continues to persist uh, 12 months after the critical illness. We know that lower extremity strength continues to be reduced three, six, and even 12 months after critical illness. There is a reduced performance on six-minute walk test distance, and that one was interesting in our systematic review because the impairment, I'm sorry, the reduction in six-minute walk test performance was independent of age, was independent of diagnosis, it was even independent of treatment with mechanical ventilation. So those people who were sufficiently ill that they required a time in the intensive care unit but did not get mechanically ventilated also had persisting reductions in six-minute walk test distance 12 months after their episode of critical care. These problems persist whether it's with activities of daily living, instrumental activities of daily living, even returning to driving. So we're very concerned that these are recovering slowly and it is compounded, the problem is compounded because there are going to be risks for persisting mental health problems. For example, cognitive impairment is evident and that does show some improvement, although when we look at cognitive impairment, up to 81% of ICU survivors demonstrate cognitive impairments three months out, and by 12 months after their ICU discharge, that number's reduced to 42%. Let's shift the conversation a little bit and talk about rehabilitation for these individuals. You make a really important point in your article that rehab, which is home or community-based, is safe and it's feasible for these individuals. What about efficacy? What do we know about the efficacy of rehab provided either in person or through tele-rehab for these folks? I'm going to approach the answer to that in a couple ways. First, I want to emphasize that while the interventions are safe and feasible, we recommend that there needs to be routine measurement of the cardiac and respiratory responses to those exercises. We don't have clear evidence on this, but anecdotally, and we're hearing this over and over, there is the risk for decompensation in response to the exercises. So we need to be vigilant when providing these exercise regimens of monitoring the patient's physical responses and then titrating the increase in exercise demands based on their physical responses. Then it's feasible and safe for them to participate. I also want to emphasize that prevention is most important. So while this discussion is not about early rehabilitation for patients in the intensive care unit, because we've seen a slow response to rehab interventions for people with PICS, we are emphasizing that preventive interventions for those patients who are in the intensive care unit and are medically appropriate for participating in physical therapy, they should be receiving that because when they do, they leave with fewer impairments and have a better, uh, and we expect a better outcome following their critical illness. Um, as far as the efficacy of interventions, um, 
I mentioned earlier that there's a, a somewhat slower course of recovery. Those patients who are at home, and it was identified earlier, they are at risk for hospital readmission. We need to give them the tools to be able to function at home. So it's important to give them the compensatory strategies and the tools so that they are able to function effectively at home. Once that's in place, then we want to transition to restorative interventions. And there's some concern that these really need to be built into a comprehensive rehab program that's going to achieve some level of overload along with providing nutritional supplements in order to get the optimal outcome. Because the, the one study that has been most promising paired strengthening exercises with supplementation with essential amino acids. So we may even want to refer these patients to a dietitian so that they get appropriate nutrition combined with their exercises. We recommend that circuit training and high-intensity interval training is effective. Balance training should be applied and aerobic training to improve endurance that is uh, titrated so that the patient is exercising at 50 to 70% of their heart rate reserve and at a score of 3 to 4 on the board breathlessness scale. In addition, that strength training should be provided at, with resistance at 70 to 80% of the patient's one repetition max. Finally, your other question was on telehealth. And while we don't yet have evidence on the effectiveness of telehealth in this population, it really holds a lot of promise. And the reason we're excited about that is we've seen in the literature that the ability to participate in specialized clinics focused on post-intensive care syndrome is limited because patients have a very difficult time getting to and participating with traditional outpatient services. It's just overwhelming when you're physically fatigued, when your uh, cognitive impairments are making it hard to schedule and keep appointments. It's very hard for these patients to participate in the travel and the activity outside the home and then travel back to the home. So the benefit of telehealth is that it gives us the opportunity to check in on those patients to give them structured and clear guidance and advancement of their exercise regimen without placing that burden of leaving their home and entering into a facility to, to participate in some of those activities. Let's talk a little bit about the family. What do we know about the impact on the family for individuals who have PICS? Family is a unique concern that is described in the literature as PICS family because the family members of those who have been in the intensive care unit have mental health problems such as high levels of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and depression. Much of this appears to be related to the actual experience around the intensive care unit because of the emotional distress that they experience. The inner body literature is telling us that after patients get home, these family members become the caregivers. Remember, they're helping that uh, survivor 
deal with changes in physical abilities, cognitive abilities, and mental health. And so the burden on the family becomes extraordinarily high. We're seeing literature that tells us their levels of anxiety are elevated, their ability to continue to participate in work is threatened, and often they're not able to maintain full-time employment because of the burdens of caring for their family member who has survived critical illness. You know, in, in your article and in our discussion today, you've raised a lot of issues that are going to need to be addressed going forward. What do the two of you see as really the, the critical future research questions that we're going to need to address as we begin to uh, provide rehabilitation to patients who are coming out of the intensive care um, units with PICS? Yeah, Alan, we are definitely in agreement with you that there's so much work to be done. And um, I think one of the serendipitous opportunities right now is that is to raise awareness about post-intensive care syndrome. Certainly, we've known about the um, physical impairments, the cognitive problems, and the mental health problems that these people are experiencing for some time, but it was only in 2012 that the term post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, was identified, and so we really need to raise awareness, as Jim said, in the community where the these patients, 85% of patients are discharged home and from the ICU, and it's, you know, they have, they bring these problems with them, and the community providers um, really need to be educated and the awareness raised to help them understand um, what these patients are experiencing and how we can best help them. Some of the particular research questions um, that are important is to really um, understand the underlying mechanisms for the problems that the people, these people are experiencing and to really design and evaluate novel interventions to prevent and treat specific impairments that um, these people are experiencing. The other things that um, we think are important are that we focus on the important patient-centered outcomes and that we're using the appropriate outcome measures for these individuals. This will just help us as a profession um, move forward if we're using the same outcome measures that are appropriate for these individuals so that we're all talking the same language in the research that we're doing. We also need to be sure that we're following our survivors longitudinally because we know that PICS has a long trajectory of recovery. And so very short-term studies are, while helpful and informative, don't tell the whole story. And so we're really advocating for these longitudinal studies of survivors so that we can really see how our interventions are helping these individuals as they, you know, continue a long time. And then Another concern is that there is a high one-year mortality rate for people that survive ICU care. And so in a lot of studies, there's a lot of um, problems with follow-up with loss to either, you know, loss of follow-up or actually mortality in these studies. And so there's a need for novel statistical strategies in order to deal with the high mortality rate and loss of follow-up that is seen in the study so that we're actually getting an accurate picture of what the research is telling us. And finally, 
um, studies with a focus on how interprofessional collaboration can move the experience and the recovery of these individuals forward. We know when people are treated with an interprofessional team that they have much better patient outcomes, they are much more satisfied with their care, the cost per capita um, for treating each patient is lower, even though there's a big team involved. Um, and there's actually benefits to the healthcare system, that, you know, with the cost being lower and the patient outcomes being stronger. And there's benefits for the providers, too, when um, the patients are treated with an interprofessional approach. The providers um, are much more satisfied with their role in the care of these individuals. And that's been something that's been phenomenal to watch during the whole COVID-19 pandemic is how all of the healthcare providers are coming together to really serve all of the people that are involved um, and to really work collaboratively to solve this problem, to um, really recreate a healthcare system in this incredible time of healthcare systems being overwhelmed to see the interprofessional team that's coming together. But even beyond the crisis point, that continued um, treatment of these individuals with an interprofessional team is critical. Well, you've outlined a really comprehensive uh, agenda for research, and boy, I couldn't agree with you more. This is um, extremely timely. I really want to thank both of you for taking the time today to talk about your article uh, with me. And I uh, really want to encourage our listeners to take a look at your perspective in PTJ. I think it's uh, extremely useful and timely and will really be helpful to individuals as we try to help patients who are surviving um, this pandemic. Thank you both. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. It was an honor to join you.